leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. What an incredible claim that you have a risen king of victory who is alive inside of you, that hell has no claim on you, that Satan has no claim on you, that even your own flesh has no claim on you, that sin has no claim on you. What a beautiful, powerful promise. He lives today. He lived, he bled, he died, he rose again, and he is our victorious king of glory. If you have your Bible, would you join me in turning to Genesis chapter 14? Genesis chapter 14, in just a moment, we're going to read together verses 13 through 24. But as you're taking just a moment to turn there, you'll remember that we're walking through the life of Abraham. If you have been with us and been walking with us through this study, we're going to continue. If you're a first-time guest with us here today, we are thrilled to have you. And we're walking through the life of this patriarch looking at a friend of God on a journey of faith. And we pick up in that story in Genesis 14. But as we get ready to pick up that story, I think we need to, to ask a very important question. Are there some things worth fighting for? Are there some things that are just flat out worth fighting for? Now, obviously, you and I both know that there's some things that aren't worth fighting for, that some things aren't worth getting your feathers, feathers ruffled, some things are not worth getting involved in, some things are not worth arguing about, some things are, are better just to dismiss yourself from the conversation, some things you just shouldn't get involved. But, but there are others that are absolutely worth fighting for. And that song really introduces that to us today because we recognize that throughout the Bible, our God is called a warrior God or a warrior king. That when you think about the Lord, God is not a pacifist. God went to war and he went to war for you. He is going to go to war again. And by the way, he is going to win. He is a God of victory over and over and over and over again. And so we celebrate with him. But as he is a victor, we are also called to be soldiers in the army of Christ. It is impossible to be a soldier and not to believe that you have to have a little fight in you. That you have to be willing to recognize that there are some battles that you need to engage. There are some things worth fighting for. And as we open up to Genesis chapter 14, just to catch us up a little bit, you'll remember that there is this pagan man in Ur of the Chaldees. His name is Abram and he's called of God and to our knowledge he had no past knowledge of God, no experience with God, that he had never met the Lord before, but in God's sovereign way, he comes to this one man, Abram, and he calls him. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. At the time, Abram completely childless. He says, not only am I going to make you into a great nation, but I'm going to move you and I'm going to give you this land. And God makes this powerful covenant with this one man. And the Hebrew people start with Abram. 
And Abram begins on this journey, and we've walked through it together, and he, he leaves Ur, and he ends up in Haran, and he eventually ends up in the Promised Land, and then he sojourns to Egypt during the famine, and then he eventually finds himself back in the Promised Land. As he's back in the Promised Land, God has blessed him immensely, and the blessings have so over, overgrown him that now even his family has been blessed by it. And we see that he and Lot have become so wealthy that they have to part company. And so Abram gives Lot first choice. He says, whichever way you want to go, I'll go the other way. And Lot looks toward the direction that he sees is more fertile. He goes to the direction, the Bible tells us, that looked a lot more like Egypt, where he had been. And it says that he settled and he pitched his tents near Sodom. And so as we see that story unfold, we find ourselves now jumping forward a little bit and we don't know exactly how much time has passed but we know there's been enough time passed that we're going to get a little world history today uh, a little some things that were going outside of God's covenant people and what was going on and Genesis 14 tells us about some kings and I think it's one of the things that's very fascinating about what you're going to read today is that when we talk about the religious book that we call the Bible when I say that it is inspired, when I say that it is factual, when I say that it is inerrant, that it is inspired, these are real people in real, real places and real people. This is not fable. This is not a made-up story. And what we know archaeologically is not only the places that we're about to read about are they verified, but the kings in archaeology, they have discovered their names, and we know that they existed, and we know that they ruled. And so as you open up, it's not, it is the story of Abram and God's promise to him, but we also see what's going on geopolitically in, the, in that arena while Abram is living out this covenant promise. And what we know is, is that for years there have been, for exactly 12 years, the Bible tells us in chapter 14, that in the land of Canaan there had been cities, and these five cities had been paying taxes to a king who was an absolute monarch over the entire area. So he would have been what in ancient times they would have called the king of kings. And this man, we find out in 14, is a king by the name of Kerderlomer. And the Lord has, in, this, in the midst of this, Abram's story would not have even intertwined with his if it were not for the fact that these people, not unlike the American colonies, were tired after 12 years of paying taxes to this man they decide that after 12 years, they are going to revolt. And so when they revolt against him and against his rule, what we find is that Kurtulamer decides that he isn't going to put up with it, and he is going to make an example out of these five cities. And he, so he goes on a warlike destruction or a war path. Well, part of his war path included a specific city, and that specific city was a place called Sodom. Sodom was the place that you remember is where Lot has settled. So Abram is out of this conflict, unengaged in this conflict, but something happens that causes Abram to get involved in the fight. And if you've read ahead, you already know what happened. Because while Kurtulamer is on this war path and he ransacks the city of Sodom, he takes some prisoners of war. And one of the people that he takes as a prisoner of war is one nephew of Abram by the name of Lot. Now, there was a man who made it out of Sodom alive, and he did not get captured by Kurtulamer. So when he makes it out alive, he puts together that Abram is Lot's uncle, and he makes it to Abram and tells him about the war, tells him what happens to Lot, 
And so Abram now begins to pray and begins to get ready about what to do next. And what you're about to read about is a God-sized miracle with Abram and the 318. He takes 318 men and he goes to the rescue of his nephew. And what we see in the midst of this, you're going to come across several really incredible Bible characters over the next few verses. But what we see is not only God's sovereign plan through it all, but what we see is that God has provided a kinsman redeemer all the way this early in Scripture to go and rescue Lot. So let's watch together as we read about the very first war that was ever recorded in Scripture. Let's stand together and we read Genesis chapter 14. I've given you the background, so we're going to begin together reading in verse 13. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. And after Abram returned from defeating Kirtalamr and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner and Eshcol and Mamre. Let them have their share. Lord, we bow before you today and ask that you would teach us that we are to fight to win, knowing that you will lead us to victory for our good and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated this morning? And as we have prayed that, that is our big idea. You see it on the screens this morning. Fight to win, knowing that God will lead us to victory for our good and for His glory. Let's jump right into the story. Um, what, what we know is that this escalation has risen and risen and risen until this all-out war breaks out. But we see that this curdle armor has had absolutely no trouble ransacking everywhere. He's making an example of every single town and every king that would revolt against him so that no one in the surrounding areas would ever dare stand up to him again. He is known as the powerhouse and he wants to keep his title. What he doesn't know is that when he goes and ransacks Sodom and he takes their people, that there is a man who is in there with them who he would have had thought had absolute no bearing on anything. But it changes the whole narrative of the story. Abram, living peacefully by himself as the Lord is blessing them, and his, the people that are living now with him are growing, his relatives, his family, 
And in those times, those would have been people who would have seen the blessings of Abram, and some of them wouldn't have been direct blood relatives. They would have over time come and asked to live and be a part of Abram's community. So this community had grown and grown, and as we have seen that, what we know is that when Abram gets the message from this man who has gotten away and brought it to him, he assembled 318 men. The reason I think it's so important that we see numbers like that is that we know absolutely not only were the places real, not only were the people real, but the numbers were real. And I couldn't help but think some of you have seen the, the movie came out, it was probably in the last 15 years, The 300. And you, you, you see uh, uh, this warlike community of 300 people defeating thousands and thousands. What you have here is 318 men, and don't miss this. For 318 men to have gone on the war mission that they went on and come back victorious is nothing short than the hand of God. These were 318 men who were not in a modern military. They were not in a militia. I'm not saying that they weren't man's, manly, manly men. I'm not saying that they weren't able. I'm not saying that they weren't strong. But they were not part of an army prior to that moment. And they go defeat the most powerful king in the known part of that world at the time. You have just read a miracle of God that he equipped and went before them and prepared them. And so as we read this, we recognize that there's something that's absolutely going on here. They had to march, if you study the geography, they had to march more than 100 miles and to defeat an army many times their size and then had to pursue them another 50 miles. Now the reason that's important and the reason I think we need to spend just a few moments this morning talking about this is because... If we don't realize that we are in an all-out war, that there is a complete assault on the godly, that there is an assault on the gospel, there is assault on the things of God, there is an assault on Judeo-Christian ethics, there is an assault on the authority of Scripture, there is an assault both from the outside, but there's also an assault from the inside, and we see that through liberalism and everything that's taking place, if you haven't woken up to the fact that we are in a war, wake up. Wake up. There is a reality of spiritual warfare that is taking place for churches and families and individuals and young people, and the desire is to steal your soul. When we sang today about the victory that we have and the victory that we have in Jesus and that Jesus lived and He bled and He died and He rose again, the reason that we continually remind ourselves that in the gospel is that the war still rages. And because the war rages, we need to be reminded of what God's done both today and in history when He took 318 men and did the impossible. He did the impossible. And as we look around at what God's doing, even if we just look at, at, at our group of believers, the people here at Summit that are assembled together as the family of God, much less if we look at the church across the world, I, I want to remind you of something. As strong as the army of God is and as many numbers as we do have, we're outnumbered. You're outnumbered. You are absolutely outnumbered. 
When we think about the lostness and the darkness and the sinfulness of the world that we live in, when we think about the ethics of the world that we live in, when we think about all the things that are taking place, you don't have to be an accountant to know we're outnumbered. So when we come across stories like this, we need to recognize the fact that from the very beginning of time, that God has always called out a remnant. Here it's 318. And it's a group of people that God has specially equipped to fight a war in which they're outnumbered, but there is absolute hope, even though it may seem bleak as you look out on the horizon. So what is the reason for that hope? How are we able in the midst of everything that we are struggling with and dealing with, where do we find that blessed and wonderful hope? It is in the fact that we should never, ever be intimidated by superior numbers of the enemy. Because one believer plus God is an overwhelming force. Let me say that again. One believer plus God is an overwhelming force. When we think about what it is that you can do. Many people get so discouraged. Well, I'm just one. I'm only one. I'm not really talented. I'm not that gifted. I'm not that smart. I don't have those abilities. What is it that I can do? One believer plus God is a majority. And the reason is, is that we serve a sovereign king who when I say dictator, I want you to understand me right. He runs the show. He owns the universe. This is my Father's world. There is not a leaf that falls, not a wave that crashes, not a grain of sand on the seashore, not a soul that He doesn't know. So when I engage in battle, whether it be the 318 that are going against Colonel Lammer and his army, or whether it be you and I in the battles that we face, you and I plus God is a majority because He is an undefeated force. He is an undisputed champion. My God has never, not once in the history of eternity, lost. And the Bible says that He's the captain of my salvation. Now, why is it important to remind you of that? Because there's so much negativity. There's so much pessimism. There's so much doubt. There's so much depression. There's so much despair that in the midst of all of that, we need to come back to the 318 and recognize that when Abram leaves out with these 318 men, he knows from the outset he's overmatched. And yet he engages anyway. And the reason that he engages, listen to me now, the reason that he engages is that the battle was worth it. And the reason the battle was worth it was because his nephew Lot, he loved him. And he wanted to rescue him. I think that we as the Christian church needs to hear the message that rings loud and clear out of this. There are some things that are worth the fight. It seems as though that there seems to be a cowardice that prevails in the Christian church in a way that somehow we are scared of whether it be political correctness or whether it be cancel culture or whether it be even people that we know that are in our own community that we just don't want to be seen 
as offensive, that we don't want to get involved, that we, we don't want to be known as that guy or that girl. And what I'm telling you is, is that, friends, the fight is not only worth it, but it's demanded in Scripture that you are called out by God to recognize that no one has ever been called to be a coward in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if He is the captain of our salvation, and He is the one that's promised the gospel, then we have to be a people that realize that this road isn't always going to be easy, and that sometimes it's going to be like we talked about last week. It's going to be the road less traveled. And so if we take that road, we need to be reminded that even though at times we are frightened or discouraged or we feel outnumbered or we see the hostile world around us, that you have an absolutely incredible secret weapon. What is that weapon? It is the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. In Ephesians chapter 6, we are told about the armor of God. And there's two things specifically that we are told, that we are given the sword of the Spirit, an offensive weapon. You've been given the sword of the Spirit, but it also says that not only are we given the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, but we're also told that another weapon that we've been given is the ability to pray in the Spirit. Now, when I say pray in the Spirit, what does that mean? If it helps you out, you can't pray out of the Spirit. Some people say, well, he was praying in the Spirit. He wasn't praying in, he wasn't praying in the Spirit. You can't pray without the Spirit. You cannot pray without the Holy Spirit of God. So if you've been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus because He died and rose again, then for you to bow your head and recognize the authority of God, the only reason that you can go before the Lord is because the Holy of Holies, the veil was split by the Lord Jesus, and the promise of the Holy Spirit falls on those who have given their life to Him. And so what we know now is that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Word of God. And then we have the prayer of faith. And so those two things are the equipping force that have been with the saints now for over 2,000 years in a new covenant era. And what that means is, as incredible as this story of Abram is, is that you are better equipped than Abram was in this moment. I'm better equipped than Abram? Yes. And here is why. Because Jesus Christ is risen indeed. He's no longer dead, but He is alive. And once He rose, He said, I'm going to send a Comforter who is going to come. And that Comforter came. And that Comforter is now the Holy Spirit of God. And so praise God as a new covenant believer. The Holy Spirit of God just doesn't come on me at times. He is with me all the time because He abides in my life. So when I go to war for the Lord, I go as one not who is not equipped, but one who is absolutely equipped. The five stones of David are guided by the same God that guides me when I go into my life on Monday tomorrow. That's amazing to think about what a warrior king that you serve. But I want you to notice something about Abram that's very different than Lot, just in the context of this story. Lot leaves and he pitches his tents near Sodom. What we see is Abram has stayed by the great trees of Mamre. Lot has gone and gone full on, headlong into the world. And it seems like that there is this false notion that somehow to engage the world, you must become of the world. In other words, you've got to 
immerse yourself in everything the world is doing to have any kind of impact on the world. And nothing could be further from the truth. Abram, when he stepped into this battle, no one had ever heard of him before. He would have seemed like a joke to Colonel Almer. It would have been absolutely no one that anyone had ever come in contact with because Abram was happy at Mamre. He was happy under those trees. His, everything was growing. He was waiting on the child of promise. He recognized that he was about to take this land that God had promised for him. And yet in the middle of that, after all of this was over, you can bet they knew his name then. And the reason is, is because what we see is that Abram had an impact not because he settled in Sodom, but because there was a separateness to him. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to go out and build compounds and not engage the world. But what that means is, if you think that somehow by pitching your tent in Sodom and hanging out with people who are absolutely don't care anything about the things of God, I am all for you trying to reach those people. But nine times out of ten, when you place yourself in Sodom, it is Sodom that will get into you instead of you getting into Sodom. And how do I know that? Let me jump ahead in the story. This was part of the sermon preparation that I said, you know what, I, I may need to save that. I'm not going to save it. I'm going to give it to you now. You ready? Lot went back to Sodom. That's the craziest part of this story. He, he's been in Egypt. He goes to Sodom. He gets taken as a POW, he gets rescued by his uncle, and what we know later on, he's back in Sodom. We're going to get there in a little while. He has to be rescued again. And the problem is, is if you spend enough time pitching your tents near a place called Sodom, eventually so much of Sodom will get into you that you don't recognize that you're no longer salt and light in that area. You look more like Sodom than Sodom looks like you, and I would tell you that you need to be very careful in your life where it is that you set up camp. Lot chose Sodom. It was a choice that Abram let him make. I don't know what all Abram knew. I don't know, and I don't pretend to know everything that was going on in people's mind. But I tend to think, and I don't think this is a far-fetched notion, Then when Lot said, I'm going that way, not only is it more fertile, but it looks a lot like Egypt. And we already knew that Sodom had a reputation by the time he went that way. I have to think that Father Abraham sat on the side of that hill and, and I don't know if they had the same expressions that we Southerners have, but I have to think he probably shook his old head and thought, mm, <laughs> I wish you hadn't done that. Can I ask you something? Those of you with friends and family that you love and care about, you ever watch people making decisions that you absolutely know aren't going to end well? I'm going to tell you, that's one of the hardest things when you really care about somebody, like you genuinely want the best for them, and you can almost watch their lives going downhill. And most of the time, it's not, as you know, it's not that they jump off of all at one time, but it's this decision followed by this decision followed by this decision, and they're slowly making their way towards Sodom. And here's what is so difficult. How... There's some of you in here, and you know what I'm talking about. You're a little bit of a control freak. Not only just about your life, but about the people around you. And, and, 
And some of it is just that you care and you, you don't want them to do those things. But, but I want you to know something. When people are hell-bent on choosing the wrong direction and setting up in Sodom, friends, it doesn't mean we don't warn. And it doesn't mean we don't pray. But we also recognize that God has given people a free will. And I hate to tell you this, but there are some people that will never learn unless they learn the hard way. And some of you are some of those people. I, you're looking at one. That most of the time in my life, it hadn't that God hadn't put wise people in my life. I have been blessed, 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 blessed. But unfortunately, sometimes it'd be so hard-headed that you decide to do things on your own and you end up over there by Sodom, that you end up setting up like a prodigal and you end up in the pig pen. And for some people, one of the things that we have to realize is that our prayer of faith is not that, not that we ever quit wanting God to rescue them, but this is a hard thing to pray. But Lord, if they have to get in with the pigs, if it has to get to the bottom of the ladder for you to rescue their soul, I've prayed I've given them advice. I've tried to stop them. And they are determined. They are determined to go that way. Then, oh Lord, what we recognize is, Lord, I'd turn them over to you. But please, please don't let them get so far turned over that their mind becomes depraved and they become hard to you. But don't give up. Even those people you know that have pitched their tents near Sodom. Even those you know that seem to be in the far country. Don't you give up. Don't you give up. You say, well, if they were ever going to come back to God, they'd have come back by now. How do you know? How do you know? I thank God that as long as there's breath in our lungs, that there is an opportunity for God to do something amazingly, abundantly, exceedingly more than we ask, think, or imagine. But friends, I'll tell you that in the midst of this story, we, we come across two more people. And as Abraham has won this great battle and he is returning from this great battle all of a sudden a name pops out of scripture that we have never seen before and you would think you would have seen this name before this name melchizedek king of salem salem just for your geography that that would eventually be jerusalem same place salem jerusalem he is the king of the area that would eventually become jerusalem he is the king of Salem, and what we know that Melchizedek means, that name actually means king of righteousness. So he is the king of what would be Jerusalem, and his name means king of righteousness. And he steps onto the scene, and he provides bread and wine, and he nourishes these men, and then he preaches over them, and he reminds Abram in verses 18 through 20, he tells them, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High who delivered your enemies into your hands. It's like he stepped off the pages of Scripture to give this incredible prophetic word to Abram and remind him who God is, the creator of heaven and earth, and that God is also the reason that he had any shot in this battle. The reason that he won. He provides him and nourishes him and he, he, he fulfills two roles that no one ever fulfilled at the same time in Jewish life. He is both a king and a priest. And being a king and a priest, that's why Abram ended up offering him a tithe, because he's a priest before the Lord God. 
How did Melchizedek come to know the Lord? We don't know. In fact, Melchizedek is only mentioned again once in the Psalms, and then he shows back again, up again repeatedly in the book of Hebrews. Now, there's two, two schools of thought on Melchizedek. Some people believe that Melchizedek was actually a theophany, that he actually was the Lord Jesus Christ that showed up just like the fourth man in the fiery furnace, just like when he wrestled with Jacob. What we see is that, that people believe that may have been what he was. And then there's others that say, no, he was an actual real king, and that as a real king, he is a type of Christ that we see typified and foreshadowing Christ. I don't know the answer to that. I, I, don't, I don't know. But what I can tell you is that what we see out of his life is something incredibly powerful because what Melchizedek does in Abraham, Abram's life is prepare him for something that he's about to face that he doesn't even know he's about to face. You know one of the reasons that you ought to be in the Word of God every day? You know one of the reasons you ought to come to church every Sunday? is because God is preparing you for stuff that you don't even know is about to happen this week. He's preparing you for stuff that you don't even know about. And this king and priest steps onto the scene and gives this word to Abram about who God is and what it is that God has done. And it's no accident that the next encounter Abram has is not with Melchizedek, but who is it with? It is with the king of Sodom himself. And then we come across what's a really strange back and forth. Because the king of Sodom steps onto the scene. He says, I tell you what, you keep all the goods and the treasure. Just give me my folks back. Why is that strange? Because it wasn't, follow me on this, it wasn't the king of Sodom's to give. Abram had every right to it because he had just won it. It was his. Abram at this point owned it. Yet the king showed up and says, it's okay if you keep it. Now, if I'm Abram, I'm going to look at him and say, I know it's okay if I keep it. I own it. I want it. I don't need your permission to keep what's mine. It's mine. But that's not the way Abram plays it. In fact, he goes even a step further. And he says, you know what? Not only am I not going to keep it because it's mine, but I want you to take it all back. And the reason was, was because Abram wanted to make sure that he turned down anything from this king of Sodom to preserve the reputation of God, to not indebt himself to anyone but the Lord. Now, he has just had this incredible victory. And I'll tell you that sometimes that our greatest times of spiritual danger are not after defeats, they are after victories. Because when victories happen in our life, it's almost as if we let our guard down. And when we let our guard down, that's when we could become prey for Satan. And in this moment, Abram could have given away his reputation and his integrity. And when he moves back to Mamre to set up camp again, when he lays his head down at night, he'd have to think every night that now he was indebted to the king of Sodom because somehow he had struck up a treaty and a relationship with him that God had never authorized. If we understand where every good and perfect gift comes from, and that's from the Lord, and we understand that it's God who has delivered us from every harm, and God that has rescued us by our salvation, then we've got to be very, very careful about where we make alliances. Abram knew that, and as he moved forward, he understood that God was the one who had guarded him, and God would be the one who would guard him again. He didn't want to make choices that would compromise him serving the Lord later on. And as I read this passage, I couldn't help but 
but remember a passage from the Gospels. You may remember it well, Matthew chapter 4. You remember when Satan took Jesus into the wilderness and he's going to tempt him? What did he promise him? He said, listen, as he took Jesus and he had him to look out at all the kingdoms of the world, he said, you can have all of this. I want to give you all of this. And he tempted him to sin. And what's a little bit ironic about the temptation is that Jesus already owned it all. Do you think you ever thought about that? When Satan tempts you to break the laws of God, if you are saved in Christ, everything that you have in Christ is already better than anything Satan has to offer. It's already better. And the temptation is for us to be clouded in our spiritual vision to be able to see that. So we find Lot. We find him camped near Sodom. We find him as a POW. And we find him being taken off, probably into slavery. We see 318 men that come to rescue him. And I can't help but think a little about Lot this morning. I can't imagine when he was in that caravan of POWs going who knows where to do who knows what. That he must have had the thought, if something radical doesn't happen, I'm in really bad shape. And all of a sudden, the 318 show up. And we see this idea that permeates all throughout the Bible. It's this idea of a kinsman redeemer that Abraham was for Lot and he comes and he delivers him and he rescues him and he saves him and he brings him back. Lot desperately needed a kinsman redeemer to come to his rescue. And I like to think that, that even though he ended up going back to Sodom, there had to have been a moment for Lot where he's in this caravan, a prisoner of war, and he had to have seen just how desperate he was that he couldn't get out of this circumstance on his own, that he couldn't save himself, that he couldn't deliver himself, that he couldn't rescue himself. And along comes Uncle Abram to deliver him out of this situation and this circumstance. The greatest, most freeing time of any of your lives will be in that moment when you recognize that you're a prisoner of war. That you're a prisoner to your flesh and you're a prisoner to your sin and you're a prisoner to Satan. That you would recognize that you are being hauled off, that you've become a POW, that you are a captive, and that there's no way that you can be released by your own works or by your own power or by your own ability. And you recognize that you need a kinsman redeemer. And the message of the gospel is that when Jesus Christ saw you a prisoner to your own sin being carried off, to a place called hell that he came from heaven born of a virgin lived a sinless life and he spilled his blood so that you would have a kinsman god incarnate the god man who would now come and he would rescue you in a way that only he could rescue you that you would be delivered from the bonds of slavery and your helpless estate would be lifted and set upon a rock and that the new place and the new residence would be because you have been rescued by the captain of your salvation jesus your lord and christ friends i would tell you that if you're in a place today where it looks desperate and it looks hopeless and you don't think that there's any way that you can get out of this situation I need you to understand today that you are one prayer away 
from the greatest God that has ever lived and will ever live. And his name is Jesus. And he will come to your side and he will rescue you. What a beautiful promise that the gospel is. But friends today, you need to understand that promise. You need to give your life over to that promise. You need to let him rescue you in a way that only a kinsman redeemer can. And when you do that, friends, what you'll see is that the battle is the Lord's. You have a warrior king. He has already won. And because I've given my life to Christ, and for those of you that have given your life to Christ, you are already a victor. Leading everyday people to love Jesus and make him known.